Good morning, Meadowview Church family. Okay. I think we got this thing on. Maybe it'll work. I am thrilled to have the privilege uh, to be able to share with you guys this morning um, to lead off uh, in a month. <laughs> Just give me a minute to catch my breath. Sorry, some of it's nerves, but some of it's passion, so we're battling a little bit of both, but um, I'm excited to be able to lead the way um, in this month of July um, and to share a little bit with you um, about something that's obviously very near and dear to our hearts, um, very, uh, very near and dear to our hearts, part of the reason that our family has come to you here at Meadowview Baptist Church, um, and uh, just as we have shared with um, the students, just as I shared with uh, the elders as we prayed together this morning, um, we fully believe the Holy Spirit um, that took us to the other side of the world, um, that's the same Holy Spirit that's at work in us when we come to you here at, at Meadowview. So hopefully that's my emotional bit. <laughs> um, that being said, I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Revelation. Um, the book of Revelation chapter 7. Um, just share a little bit with you this morning about um, really what is a picture here um, of the scene in which uh, all of God's plan to redeem and restore creation um, will be realized. Um, it's a, a, a passage in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and um, we, having just come back from a term of service with the International Mission Board, um, Allie and I recognize that this is the, the vision statement that the International Mission Board has set aside um, as their, uh, the, the vision for their company. Um, but we also heard during our time in pre-field training that in the same way that this is the vision for the International Mission Board, this too should be the vision for the church um, because it is God's vision uh, for his creation. Um, it is the culmination of all things. And so, um, as we look at this passage together this morning, I hope to uh, encourage you with a few ways that we, as a church family, might be um, eager to press towards this vision. Um, so that being said, let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, uh, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of the moment. When all brokenness will be no more. The moment whenever God will redeem his creation and we will see him face to face. Um, this is a vision that God has established from the beginning of time. Uh, from the moment that man sinned in the garden, there was a plan um, that was put in place and it all leads to uh, the culmination here in this scene in Revelation chapter 7. Um, there are at least three, uh, three reasons based on this um, passage in Revelation chapter 7 that I believe that we as followers of Jesus should be eager um, to press towards that vision. The first is this. The present age will not come to an end until the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We know that based on Matthew chapter 24, 
that the gospel will be proclaimed to, uh, among all nations, and then the end will come. It is one of the signs of the end of the age that, that Jesus referred to when he was asked, when will the end of the age come? He says it's not, man, uh, it's not to man to know times and seasons when, um, when these things will come to pass. However, he did note um, in giving his response that one of the indicators of the coming of the end of the age is that the gospel will, will be proclaimed among the nations and then the end will come. So we know that, according to Scripture, that, um, that ultimately this Revelation 7, 9, and 10 vision will not be realized until the moment that the gospel has been proclaimed among the nations. It's a beautiful picture that we have here when we come together as a church family to worship and to hear the, the preaching of the word. And this is the closest glimpse that we have of this glorious scene that's described in Revelation chapter 7, but it's only just a foretaste. It's just a foretaste of what's to come. And I think that for this reason that we as followers of Jesus should um, press towards this vision with eager ambition, just out of a, a desire to be united with our Creator. Second reason, I believe, that we as Followers of Jesus should be eager to press towards this vision that's described in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. All followers of Jesus should no longer live according to the desires of the flesh, but according to the desires of the Father. We know that according to the writings of the Apostle Paul, according to everything that Jesus taught, that when we follow Jesus, we are crucified with Christ, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Meaning that we take on the desires of the Father, and dying to the desires of the flesh means laying aside everything that lies behind us and striving forward to what lies ahead. And part of that is having desires that align with those of our Heavenly Father. Obviously, this vision, when God spoke this vision, He spoke this vision uh, desiring that, he, that it would be realized. He wouldn't speak this vision through the prophet John with no intention of seeing this vision come to, come to fruition. And yet... We know that as our desires align with those of God the Father, that we too should desire to see this vision described in Revelation 7, 9, and 10 come to pass. At the same time, the Father desires, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, um, Peter describes this moment. He says in 2 Peter chapter 2, Verse 3, he says, or I'm looking at the wrong place here. I apologize. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, uh, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Therefore, the, the Father desires that no one should perish. And for this reason, we should be eager to see the vision of Revelation 7, 9 realized. Because this picture, that's the, uh, this picture that is uh, described in Revelation 7, 9 is of a, a scene whenever, um, whenever there will be a great m multitude who, um, having received salvation, fill the throne room. But we should share in a mutual desire um, that no one should perish. That's not to say that salvation is for all people. We're not universalist in what we believe. Um, God is patient in holding out to bring that vision to fruition. 
Therefore, there are many who have opportunities to believe in the gospel. Yet the reality is, is that he is patient in that he desires that no one should perish. And so too should our desire that no one should perish inspire us to press towards this vision that's described in Revelation chapter 7. Now the scene that's described in Revelation chapter 7 here, um, I want to point out something that obviously is very near and dear to my heart um, that comes through in this text here. Um, And that is the element of the fact that every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages are incorporated in this this Revelation 7, 9, and 10 picture of the throne room of heaven. That means that um, there uh, there will be someone from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb in this scene. Um, Now, obviously, in the work that we have just returned from, um, there were a lot of terms that we came to understand along the way, some of those that, um, without a proper understanding of, you might be confused on what I'm uh, talking about here. Now, this picture that describes very clearly, we're talking about nations at the very least. Um, we could uh, break down geographical boundaries of what nations might look like here and go in further because then we're talking about tribes and peoples and languages. I had no concept of uh, tribes until we, uh, we lived in Indonesia. Uh, in Indonesia alone, there are over 1,300 tribes. That is, there are over 1,300 people groups who have a distinct language and culture that Um, the language and culture that they have is so unique that uh, any attempt to share the gospel in that language might be met with opposition unless their culture or their language is understood. Um, So that is what I mean whenever I'm talking here. Really, what, what is described here is not necessarily people that live within a specific geographic location here, but people that have a common language and a common culture here. So that's what, um, that's what, is being described in this Revelation 7, 9, and 10 picture. And we know that um, uh, based on the, the progression of Scripture um, that these nations were born at a time in the Old Testament. Um, in the book of Genesis, um, there was a scene when after Noah had been given a command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, even still the people failed to, to obey this one command that was given even from the, the garden. That command goes all the way back to the garden, the command to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. That extends all the way back into the garden, it, and it passes on even through into Noah. And then um, we reach this scene um, in the book of Genesis where um, uh, basically there were a people group who were scattered or who, who were given this, um, given this goal of going into all the earth and, and, and multiplying and being fruitful to fill the earth. Why is that? So that God's glory would be proclaimed throughout uh, the heavens and the earth. Um, but yet they failed to do that. And you know this scene, um, the Tower of Babel. They, instead, they chose to stay together to build a tower. And even in that scene... Um, the language is latent with this ideal that these people, they just had a desire uh, to be God. Um, that's just what it's latent with there. But the point is, is that God had an intention that the earth would be filled with um, uh, those who proclaim his praises. And from, so from that moment, he scatters them intentionally and he confuses their language. And it's from that place that the nations are born. And that's when 
this, this mission becomes overwhelmingly complex. Sorry. That's when this mission becomes overwhelmingly complex because from the very beginning, God had purposed to fill the earth. Um, he had purposed to fill the earth um, with his glory through those who would proclaim his praises. And that mission was at first that straightforward. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They couldn't heed that command. He confused the languages. Nations are born. And now we have the greatest hurdle to the gospel. And that is just simply crossing cultures, crossing languages for the sake of the gospel. Yet that being said, um, people groups are defined by having a unique culture and a unique language um, that is common to them that presents a barrier to, um, to the gospel if others attempt um, to bring the gospel to them. Um, what we know that there are over 12,000 distinct identified people groups uh, in, in the world today. Of those 12,000, roughly 4,000 are considered reached. That means that the gospel has made it into those countries. America is by and large reached. Um, uh, Western Europe is by and large reached. Um, we recognize that those parts of the world, the gospel has made it there. The gospel has been proclaimed and that there are large populations exceeding the number of 2%. 2% is a threshold that is recognized universally as being considered reached. Um, yeah, as being considered reached. So anything beyond 2% is considered reached. But, um, so the point is, is that the gospel has made it into these parts of the world, whereas... The gospel has made it into these parts of the world. There are other parts of the world that are considered unreached. Um, those are the parts of the world where less than 2% of people within a distinct people group um, identified by a unique language and culture have followed Jesus. Um, furthermore, a, con a people group is considered unreached and unengaged if there are no present efforts by any evangelical missions organization to bring the gospel to them. Um, of the remaining number of people groups that are considered unreached in the world, um, over 7,000 are unengaged. That means that over 7,000 people groups don't even have access to the gospel. That means that They've never even heard the name of Jesus. I'll just share a brief aside. Last, last week during our, uh, our college group, we just had a, what I would consider a very fruitful time of um, just discussion about how the Lord has worked in our lives um, to bring us to where we are today. Um, and so most of us took the time to share a testimony of how the Lord has worked in our lives and um, the one common thread that stuck out to me is the fact that most of us in this, maybe even many sitting in this room, share a commonality and a testimony, and that's that at a very young age, there was a realization because of exposure to the teaching of the word that you didn't want to spend an eternity in hell. And so out of fear, you repent, you believe the gospel, and you come to accept the truths that Scripture teach later in your life. But the point is, is that you had the wherewithal, the access to the gospel to be able to make that choice at a young age. And yet, there are people in this world yet 
who have not even had the privilege to hear the name of Jesus. The book of Romans is fairly clear and straightforward in its language and teaching that, that no man is with excuse. Romans chapter 1 says in verse 18 through 20, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. They have no excuse. Have you ever stood in awe and wonder of God's creation and realized that that is the reason that you have no excuse? Because God's glory is revealed even through every aspect of his creation. They have no excuse. And yet Romans 10 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they, whom they have never heard? And that how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are, those to pre, or how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The point is, is that without the proclamation of the gospel, they have no hope. And so there are three billion people that make up those 7,000 some odd tribes who have no access to the gospel, and there are no attempts being made at this present point in time to even reach them. That should be enough to stir you, at the very least, to consider what part the, uh, the Lord would have, um, have you play in this great plan of redemption. So the third reason, then, that I believe that we as followers of Jesus should be eager to press towards this vision described in Revelation 7-9 is just simply obedience to the Great Commission. So I invite you to turn then to Matthew chapter 28, a passage that's very familiar to you, I'm sure. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's a picture described in Revelation 7, 9, and 10 whenever a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language will surround the throne of Jesus in praise, or the throne of God in praise. And here we see how that vision will be realized. It's through the local church that God has purposed for missionaries to be raised up and to be sent out to the nations, to make disciples of all nations. And therefore, we believe, um, I, I believe that within every core of my being that, that this, this task of making disciples of all nations, it rests with all followers of Jesus. International Mission Board provides a helpful definition on their website about the call to mission. It says the call to salvation includes a call to mission. For every person who responds to God's call as a disciple of Jesus receives Christ's command to make disciples of Jesus. Disciple-making is thus the God-given, Christ-enabled, spirit-empowered duty of every disciple, whatever his or her station, location, or vocation. 
In the same way, every disciple plays an integral part in the eternal purpose of God to glorify his name through his disciples made in every nation. More than a commission, this is a privilege. I feel like this is a privilege that we have. That God would see us in our state of destitution that he would save us from our sins and that he would invite us into this plan to redeem a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ says anyone who desires to follow me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he follows me. What does that look like? It means like selling your life out to this cause right here. Why? Because why wouldn't you? You have no hope apart from the gospel. That's why we're here. I'll just be completely honest. My heart burns. At some regular intervals, I I would wake up in the morning to to read my Bible and, and to pray. and I eventually grew numb to the sounds of the call to prayer ringing out through the streets as my neighbors passed by out on their motos. I could hear them right through the front window. They would pass by on their motos, headed down to the mosque where they would roll out their prayer carpet and they would fall flat on their face before God who doesn't exist. I'll point that out as one of the greatest oppositions that faces the proclamation of the gospel among the nations right now. Because those people aren't, they're just, they're not passive worshipers. Because in the same way that we ought to be eager to make disciples of all nations, they're eager to make converts to their false religion where they fall flat on their face before a God who doesn't exist. And they're doing it with eager ambition. I promise you, I lived as a minority in, in this country. And there were many occasions where I went into a conversation thinking that my, my goal was to get to the gospel and immediately sensing that their goal was to convert me to, um, to another religion. And why? It's just because they, there's a cause for them that they've been raised to believe is truth their whole life, so they have no, no greater reason to do anything different. But the reality is, is that they're hopeless without the gospel. They're falling flat on their face before a God who doesn't actually even exist. So why shouldn't we be eager to press towards this vision described in Revelation 7-9? It's the culmination of all things. We have the example set forth in the, in the New Testament. Um, in Acts chapter 13, this is the first time that the, the church is described as actually setting apart and sending out um, Paul and Barnabas says in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Siren, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So I would propose at the very least that we as a church should be committed to the setting apart and the sending out and the supporting of workers for the sake of the gospel. 
So what does that look like on a practical level? In order for someone to be set apart, to be sent out, they need to be discipled right here. But we recognize that the, 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 all of the discipleship that happens within the context of this church building, every uh, meeting that's scheduled, every discipleship meeting that happens, every uh, Bible study that's participated in, those are only good in as much that they inspire us to go to go beyond the walls of this, this very church building. I advocate for the unreached and the unengaged, but God advocates for all those who are lost. I read you the passage there in, um, in 2 Peter just a moment ago that he is patient because he desires that no man would perish. And so at the very least, we should start right beyond the walls of our church building. Why? Because there are people who, even having heard these truths over and over again who have become numb to them there are still people who are dying they're perishing in their sin bound for an eternity in hell and so we should be eager to even to share our faith right beyond the walls of our church but at the same time there yet remain three billion people in this world who have never even heard the name of jesus The point that I hope to make is this, is that the mission starts right here. But it's certainly not to remain right here. And we have the opportunity right beyond the walls of our church to love and to serve those in our community for the sake of the gospel. And I promise you that in due time, as you begin to look at others in light of uh, an eternal perspective, realizing that in the same vein that you may have at one point in time made a profession of faith out of a realization that you didn't want to spend an eternity in hell or some other reason like that, um, in the same reason that you want to be set free from that, so too should you desire that others would be set free from that. And so my encouragement to you as a church this morning would be that you would be eager to do the work within the church, to set apart, and that you would be willing to make the sacrifice that it takes to not only be the one to consider going, but also to see faithful followers of Jesus go. Because the reality is, is that Paul and Barnabas, I'm sure the church at Antioch would have loved to have Paul and Barnabas right there, right in the midst of them to serve them the whole time. But they set them apart and they sent them on their way. Why? Because they knew that the mission transcended what was happening right there inside the silo at Antioch. So we should be eager as a church to set apart and to send out. But the mission doesn't stop there. Because even as, uh, even as many are sent on their way, the task remains to, uh, to support. Set apart, send out, and support. So what does it look like to support workers? I could share a testimony of probably what I would consider to be one of the most, um, perhaps one of the most helpful things that we experienced while we were, um, while we were in Indonesia. Um, this is, uh, I think that some of the common approaches that we see supporting missions, which I affirm that this church is doing well to do this, is to, to pray and to give um, but one way that we felt really particularly loved, um, there was a church family um, from Kentucky 
they have field workers in Indonesia right now. Um, people who they set, up, uh, they set apart, they sent them off, and they're continuing to support them today. But um, this church family, they came to us on the other side of the world, and they provided free child care, and they just equipped and encouraged people. Right there, right in the midst of all the brokenness and all the darkness, they just came out, took all the responsibilities off everybody's hands for a couple of couple of days and just poured into into workers and honestly it was like a very rejuvenating and refilling time and and I think this is just one example of how involved that um, that we could be as a church family in the work that's happening to the ends of the earth there are there are pathways to be so involved I'm thankful for the way that we have our hands on the work that's being done um, in Cincinnati Um, even in Cincinnati with the the church plant there um, I'm so grateful to see that we have the opportunity to go up and to encourage that church family and to support them in their ministry efforts. And in the same way, I think that um, more than anything, I just think that we should be eager as a church family to, from within, um, within our uh, congregation to, to set apart and to send out and to continue to support for the sake of the gospel. If you go back, to the very beginning of your own personal testimony and you think about the just the tumult that comes with um, processing all of the emotions and then finally finding the freedom from that, knowing that um, you've been set free, but then realizing that, um, that there aren't, or that there are others, um, even three billion in this world, who don't have that same privilege. And then you go one step further to realize that the three billion people that are being described in that number represent or are part of the constituency of that vast multitude that will make up this great scene that's described in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. So, that being said, I pray that moving forward that as a church family, we would be eager to look for ways that you would even be willing to consider with your own life. We, I, I, I have uh, made this personal vow to, I think at all times as followers of Jesus, we should be willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel. Would you agree? Because the reality is, is that our life is not our own, right? We sing that, the, the words of that song all the time. My life is not my own. Have you actually thought about what that means? Like, my life is not my own. The reality is, is that our life is not our own because we even depend on every, lo- or every breath that we take, every beat of our heart. We depend on God for all of that. So we should willingly, with open hands, at all points in time, say, I'm willing to go anywhere. I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to see Revelation 7, 9, 9 and 10 come to pass. Why? because my life is not my own. Let me just read that. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 one more time. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne 
to the Lamb.